Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The World Cricket Show is proudly supported by Newbury Cricket Bats. Quality bat makers since 1919. Yeah, you don't have to say bats. We're sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time. Ho, 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 and welcome to the World Cricket Show. Ho, ho. I'm Adam Bayfield, and I'll be your host for this 2019 Christmas special. And jingling and jangling his sleigh bells in his little elf costume, it's Tony Kerr. You missed a ho, ho host. Mm. Missed out one there. You didn't look very impressed (laughs) by my intro. (laughs) I will... I will admit. That's a fair assessment. How are you doing, Tone? Yeah, good, thanks. Merry Christmas. And let, to you. Let me be the first to say, Merry Christmas. Excited for this? Excited to be back for another World Cricket Show Christmas special? We've been away for a while, haven't we? But yeah. we've, uh, we've been brought back at a, a crucial moment to heal a divided nation. <laughs> it's very timely. No buzzing. I mean, how many have we done now? 10, 11? What, Christmas specials? Yeah. Uh, well, we usually do one a year um, around Christmas time. So, so this must be 11, right? Yeah, well, uh, staggeringly, we've been doing this for, we've been doing the show for 11 years. That's frightening. So I assume this is the 11th one. How many times do you think I used the, <laughs> the joke, World Cricket Show, ho, ho? That's worth going back to find out. In specials. I mean, it's become one of this country's most cherished Christmas traditions, really, hasn't it? It's kind of, it's as timeless as Charlie Brown. It's as moving as The Office. It's as hilarious as Mrs. Brown's boys. It's been overshadowed by Gavin and Stacey. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> yeah, it's very yeah. much like, yeah, it's like the, the Queen's speech, isn't it? There'd be uproar if it was scrapped, but no one actually listens to it. <laughs> James Corden's stealing all of your gigs, isn't he? You were so close to getting that uh, late night show in the States. How different but... our lives could have been. Just looks, it just looks tiring now. I don't know if I'd fancy it. Here's a key question for you. How Christmassy are you feeling <laughs> this year? A lot more now you've walked in than that. Yeah, I'm wearing one of my uh, endless train of Christmas jumpers. Uh, and this one is uh, a massive cartoon reindeer. This jumper's way too big for me as well. So it kind of swallows me up. I think it's bringing something fresh to the genre. Uh, have we, uh, I don't know, what, have we gone past Christmas jumpers yet? I've probably asked this as well about four or five times. Has it peaked? Uh, not for me, uh, but possibly for my partner, <laughs> who's... Uh, Getting a little bit fed up with me wearing them, wearing nothing but Christmas jumpers. Very much now the, the go-to, isn't it, for, you know, comedy office workers. Banter is the sort of Christmas suit. Mm. See a lot of those around. But, it just looks very uncomfortable. Poor material. Speaking of poor material, <laughs> uh, we, should probably yeah, move, up nicely, we should probably move on. As you may be able to hear uh, in my voice, I've got a bit of a cold tone so this is just a kind of a preemptive apology to listeners if i'm coughing and spluttering my way through this i thought you know i I came down with a cold a couple of days ago and i thought perfect let's arrange a podcast 
I'll come round. Bring him down. <laughs> come round to Tony's, and uh, I'll just talk directly into your face for an hour or so. So uh, yeah, you got very close to me. Have a good weekend. Uh, but yes, right. Let's 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 go on with let's it. Let's crack on with it, shall we? We have got a lot of cricket to get through on this Christmas special. We need to talk about England. Uh, since we last did a podcast, they've played an entire test series in New Zealand, uh, and they're about to embark on another one in South Africa. There are a few other bits and pieces to catch up on from around the world as well. Pakistan are playing a test series at home against Sri Lanka. That uh, started today as we're recording this, so uh, we'll, we'll touch on that as well. We've also got an interview to bring you. We're going to be talking to cricket writer Tim Wigmore, whose new book, Cricket 2.0, co-authored with Freddie Wilde, chronicles the T20 revolution. So that should be a very interesting chat. Uh, but we're going to start, Tone, on a bit of a sad note because this week we had the desperately sad news that Bob Willis has died at the age of 70 after a long illness. Legendary fast bowler, of course, legendary uh, England great, and equally legendary pundit. Of course, a, a fixture became a, a, an icon uh, on the Sky Sports team in the Sky Sports studio uh, on The Verdict, uh, which has always been one of our favourite things about cricket. I mean, I don't know about you, Tone, but I was completely knocked out by this news, actually. I, I texted you when I, I saw the headline and just said, not Bob Willis. Well, Charles, I was pretty, uh, yeah, pretty cut up. I mean, it, it, yeah, it's, I think, you yeah, know, the reaction kind of speaks to, you know, how obviously how big an impact Bob Willis had over yeah, quite a few years, obviously playing and, and punditing. I didn't, you know, we obviously didn't really see him play much live, mm. uh, but certainly, you know, kind of starting to play cricket. The first, pretty much the first cricket I can remember watching is my dad's VHS of the uh, 81 Ashes. And uh, yeah, so, you know, he would have been one of the first you know, players I've ever yeah, saw in action. Um, but yeah, obviously certainly, yeah, certainly more of an impact on, on our lives as a pundit and, and yeah, just, you know, what a legend, what a, yeah, always, always appointment viewing if particularly if there'd been a, you know, poor performance from England, uh, yeah, always enjoyed the sort of mostly watching the, the faces of the other guys in the, the verdict studio, just, they would just be sort of creasing up. Whereas Willis would, it'd be just like cold, like not even a hint of uh you know of any kind of remorse about what he was saying yeah just kind of yeah going for it yeah he did have that uh amazing kind of stony faced uh look that as you say even though he must have known what he said yeah. there's a good documentary that sky have been uh that the sky made a few years ago and they've been re-showing on the on the cricket channel where he talks about his kind of process and they asked him you know are are your lines pre-prepared and he says well some of them are so some of them he obviously like wrote them effectively beforehand and so he he obviously knows that what he's saying is you know kind of over the top hammed or up. Hammed, yeah, hammed up exactly or and and funny a lot of the time but he was he was amazing incredibly good at at keeping that straight face and as you say just watching the reaction from whoever it might be jonathan trot or uh uh dominic cork or alex stewart or Colville. I mean, he just had a, a fantastic relationship with Colville. It really was a, a double act, wasn't it? Um, yeah, I'm just, I'm finding it quite difficult to wrap my head around it, to be honest. Like, it, it, it is, as I say, it is really upsetting. And as you say, we, we don't remember him 
as a player. You know, he's before our time as a player. We've obviously seen footage and he is an England great. You know, he's arguably, I mean, no longer in terms of number of wickets, but he is arguably England's best ever fast bowler. Almost certainly England's best ever fast bowler because he was, he was genuinely quick in a way that, that Anderson isn't. And he has that kind of iconic action that is, you know, that is often imitated. Um, but yeah, we don't remember him as a player. But as a pundit, he is just as much of a legend. And as, as you say, that, that that style he had was so unique and that kind of forthright acerbic style, but always with that kind of twinkle in his eye and that, although he had that stony face, you could still sense that there was a kind of warmth under the under the facade. And I, I just, I loved watching him. As you say, it was appointment viewing and I'm finding it quite difficult to get my head around the fact that he'll never be in that studio again. I mean, I, I, this is kind of an obvious point, but it's in some ways it's what is most unacceptable about death is the permanence of it. And it's just the fact that he'll never be there again. I just can't really, I can't really compute that. Yeah. And, and yeah, obviously came for most people out of the blue, didn't it? Um, yeah. Yeah. He'd been working over the summer yeah and, and, and you know that it, sometimes i sometimes i would kind of think he would be too harsh uh, like i have a tendency i think in, in my punditry which i'm not comparing our levels or knowledge or experience no you're pun- more kind of you're more in the category with corden james corden like yeah. that's who you like to be compared I'm, with i'm probably a division or two below willis uh <laughs> but I, yeah i think i have a tendency to be more lenient uh so i sometimes thought he was perhaps a bit harsh, but I think what was, you know, what, what's nice or what, you know, what's pretty true to him is that, you know, by all accounts, he was kind of had as high a standards of his teammates when he was playing. So he would, wouldn't hold back then. So, you know, it wasn't like he just kind of after retirement thought, yeah, I'll have a dig here, you know, mm. I'll just start ripping people. You know, he just genuinely had very high standards. And Well, and he was, it was always considered. I mean, there was yeah, obviously, oh, yeah. there, there, wasn't were, like, there were occasions where you thought, well, he's, he's saying that for the sake of saying something or, you know, that he, he would occasionally uh, swing too quickly from one opinion to another based on, uh, you know, one day's play, which we're guilty of as much as anybody. That That is a, a very easy trap to fall into. So it's not a criticism specifically of him, but, you know, he obviously wasn't perfect as a pundit, but it was always considered, I felt like he, he had a deep knowledge of the game he knew what he was talking about and that that is helped by the fact that he was such a great player so he you know he's coming from that kind of position of authority and as I say I just think he seemed like a genuinely nice man as well in increasingly so I think in recent years that has kind of come through on tv a bit more and you know I just just one of my favorite uh sports figures and it's just really really sad I think as well you know um obviously different generations of, of cricket fan will, will identify with, you know, different pundits or writers or commentators or whatever. But certainly, you know, it, it is a, it, well, it's obviously, the, uh, you know, the end of an era, but, you know, with, with Gower leaving Sky, but obviously now with, you know, with Bob Willis uh, passing away, you know, it, it is like that, that is a real end of an era for mm. a particular kind of cohort of uh, observers and interpreters of cricket that we've kind of, you know, we've gone to for how many odd years? I don't know, most of our watching lives. And so in a lot of ways, watching England won't be the same. It is it's going to be a different experience. Like he was, just, he was always there. I mean, I know, you know, as we've talked about a lot, the, the you know, the fact that, uh, 
Englander behind that paywall on Sky has created a lot of problems for cricket, but it has meant that you know Willis has just been a a constant presence when watching the England cricket team. Uh, well, you know, certainly for the last fourteen, fifteen years since it, it left Channel Four. But ov- I mean, obviously for away tests, he's been there all our lives. So he has just been this kind of constant companion when watching England. And it's just, yeah, it's 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 going to be different now, and it's. It's just very, very sad. Do you have any uh, most memorable moments, Willis moments? I know a lot's been kind of doing the rounds. A lot of clips have been doing the rounds. Yeah, the one that the one that really made me laugh um, watching it again is the uh, advert that they did for the Ashes in 2015. <laughs> Do you remember this? Yeah, uh, in the in the courtroom, and Colville going. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? And Willis, the judge, going, guilty, guilty, guilty. <laughs> Take him down. Like, I, what I love about that is the kind of uh, self-awareness and, and the sense of humour that I think 20 years ago, people didn't think Willis had, that they thought he was just kind of dour and dull. But as I say, I think more and more uh, in the later part of that punditry career, I think that other side came through. And, you know, kind of epitomised by that advert. Now, if you haven't seen it before, it's well worth looking up on YouTube. Well, anyway, very, very sad news and a sad way to kick off the podcast. Uh, but just thought we ought to uh, pay our own tribute to a great man. All right, Tony, well, we're going to kick off this Christmas special with an interview. We're going to be talking to Tim Wigmore, who is a cricket writer for The Daily Telegraph and has also written for lots of other publications, Crick Info, The Economist, amongst others, about the new book that he has written with CrickViz analyst and freelance journalist Freddie Wilde. Uh, it's called Cricket 2.0, Inside the T20 Revolution. Now, somewhat astonishingly, Tone, this is a book that you've read. Yeah, most of, actually. Yeah, I would, Don't pat me on the back just yet. I've got a couple of chapters left. You love books, don't you? You're all about books, then. You won't shut up about books. It's always Faulkner this and Steinbeck that. Yeah. No, I've definitely... you've uh, read this one too. Yeah. I've not traditionally been a real sort of poster boy for reading. Um, (laughs) But yeah, getting into it in my old age. uh, It's not not bad. They're not that bad, are they? Not that boring books. Nerd alert. Yeah. No, no, I've remarkably actually read uh, uh, close to two books on holiday the other week. So, uh, yeah. And this was, yeah, really, really interesting. Uh, very thorough kind of look at the whole of, yeah, sort of the, you know, the 2020 revolution, as revolution, it says yeah. on the front. But yeah, really interesting read. Very, very good. Highly recommended. So, yeah, Tim was good enough to chat to us from South Africa, where he's just arrived to cover the England tour. He'd just flown in from India. So uh, he, I think he was... Uh, wrestling with a bit of jet lag but you know apparently we were able to help out by forcing him to stay up later than he probably would have wanted to uh, to talk to us over Skype so we started uh, by asking him just to give us a, a a quick overview of the book and why they decided to write it but yeah I mean so so do you want to kind of take us from the top Tim so um for the benefit of our listeners what what's what's the idea behind the book and and what what prompted you to write it yeah, so I mean, the, the very simple answer is uh, Freddie and I, we'd sort of been, obviously we've been talking about T20 a lot. Uh, well, we'd been writing about it and, and and tweeting and so on, but we'd also been having conversations with each other. And 
we actually had a sense that we wanted to sort of read a book that taking everything together and a sense of the journey of T20 and you know explaining how we how we'd got here and actually sort of taking it seriously as a as a sport so in terms of all the skills of, of players and also all the the off-field stuff as well and um yeah because the, the probably the book we wanted to read was not there we decided to to write it ourselves yeah fantastic as you say you do pretty much cover every base uh yeah the 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 styles of play tactics the business of it the organization and everything i mean as you said before you know it's sort of been a couple of years that you've been working on it but how much did has kind of t20 been evolving in that time as well did you find things from when you started writing or starting to putting ideas down that things have, have even changed beyond that is, is t20 still as fast changing as as it's ever been in its short history uh it's a good question i think it's it's got a level of maturity if you liked whereby the the sort of big untapped things are probably less than a few years ago so there's probably it's more probably more evolution than revolution but i mean that's a, one of the quite big things was in 2017 when Sunil Ryan starts opening opening the batting for kkr and the ipl um and that was really interesting i mean it was a bit of going back to the future in some sense because it was kind of the idea of a, a pinch hitter but it was that was kind of predicated on the idea you know teams value their wickets too highly in t20 and that was quite a radical approach to basically chuck in a guy to open and say even if you can get you know 10 off six and get out from like the end of the first over that that's a good you know that's a quite a good contribution um so that was that was sort of during during the phase of of writing i suppose impact on odi cricket we've we've seen that as well over the last sort of four or five years um although the pitches in the world cup this summer meant we didn't see you know ridiculous scores as we have in lots of bilateral odi series um yeah, I think there's a, there's a sort of continuous journey. I mean, one of the things we actually predicted that we had predictions at the future at the end. One of those was uh, at some point uh, a team will deliver 20 overs of, of spin. Um, and actually in the course of uh, b- literally between filing that that and actually going to press, Guyana in the CPL, they delivered, I think it was 15.3 out of 16.3 overs of spin in the game. So they almost beat the prediction before the book had, had come out. <laughs> Again, just for the benefit of our listeners, so in writing this book, then you've you've been you've spoken to a lot of the kind of leading lights of T Twenty and people involved in you know in in the development of it and the way it's changed. So I know you've spoken uh, to some some pretty influential figures in that regard. Do you want to do you want to give us a flavour of some of the people you've spoken to? Yeah, yeah, we, we were sort of counting it up, and we really, we really, it was it was over eighty. So um, yeah, a lot. Um, I mean, we talked to everybody. We talked from the England side. We talked to people like Owen Morgan, Joss Butler. Trevor Bayliss, uh, from a kind of global global standpoint, people like uh, Rashid Khan, Kieran Pollard, Carlos Brathwaite, of course, here of the World T20 final, Sandy Lamachani from Nepal, and kind of evidence of the new democratisation of, of the game. Uh, we've also talked, what was really interesting, talking to sort of test greats who've been involved in T20 from their perspectives, so people like Raul Dravid, Ricky Ponting, um, so yeah, that's just a few. So like, a huge, huge range of names, and also um, that was a fun bit of a, a project like this is sort of re- recting, if you like, or, or, or bringing back some names you might have forgotten about. So uh, there's a really interesting chapter where we we have an interview with Dave Dernbach, um, which, which was mainly done by, by Freddie. But um, it's really interesting, you know, when Dave Dernbach talks about 
all the abuse he got on social media, especially after the World T20 in 2014, and how you know, really, really, really tough. And that's something I mean, that's something we don't hear about too too much. A different perspective on it. So that was I mean, one of the things we wanted to do is it was a portrait in the round, and that means you know, although broadly it's you know we we really like T20, but that doesn't mean you should be we should be cheerleaders for it and neglect bits you know uncomfortable truths and so on. So you know we have the bits on social you know the social media abuse and the, the, the personal toll on, on players i think this is this is you know even the mental health side i mean lots of t20 cricketers more and more are basically they're, they're freelancers and that you know on one level of course you know the kind of idea ideal of freelance life uh, projected by chris gale in his sort of instagram feed of you know yeah wherever he is in the world it's having more fun than you i mean that that's that's one <laughs> side of it but that's not that's not very representative really that's not the experience of of most people in fact it's almost certainly not even the experience of him himself you know a lot of it is your you often have one year contracts and and that means you know a few bad games for a team and you won't get a contract and also there's a real snowball effect both good and bad so you know if someone does well in you know big bash and pakistan super league well then they'll probably get an ipl contract and so on but and then that's great and you know they can you know within a year it can change their life out of you know completely forever um but the flip side of that is you have a couple of bad tournaments because often teams only only sort out their player list quite late on the day which means actually you know if you have you do badly in you know say the big bash or uh, whatever, and then the Pakistan Super League comes up straight after, and they probably won't then give you a contract after. And then because you've done badly, in fact, on, and then suddenly you're sort of out of the circuit. And and because the coaches are often the same, so the coaches and analysts and so on often move from league to league, which means if they suddenly they don't fancy a player, that means you know they can you know often have a job in say you know Caribbean Premier League, the Big Bash, and Pakistan Super League at the same time. So that could be three gigs you you kind of lost at once, or three major people you you put off. So, um, and that's yeah. So that's, it's, it's very very hard for players that. And um, I think most players, I you know, it's ideally would would probably still rather have have multi year contracts and even kind of old fashioned national contracts. It's it's, it's whether the, the sums add up and so on. So there's there's different things going on. But yeah, being a, a freelance cricketer is is a choice, and it's it can be can be really really brutal really really tough yeah the, the stuff with uh, jade Dernbach was was really interesting and i guess as you say the sort of fragility of uh, all the contracts and that kind of stuff but but on the pitch as well uh, i suppose there was a time when uh you know players and particularly bowlers like Dernbach were being asked to, to to do a job which when they take a lot of punishment for on the field uh and, and get a lot of stick was there a sense that that there's now a sort of greater understanding you know of what of what players kind of need to do and that, and that bad performances yeah aren't quite as sort of drastically looked at if you like well i think one of the issues actually sometimes is the way stats are used in a very simplistic way that can be quite quite dangerous for players and jj makes a classic example of this because uh, he often you know he bowls a very very hard position over his over at the death uh which means even if you're going for none over the death you're doing actually a good job but with that numbers flashed up on screen, you know, the minute that is, um, people will be, you know, you know, they're doing those very aggressive, I would say passive aggressive, but it's just aggressive aggressive when you, you know, you at, you quote tweet someone, you know, saying so-and-so at so-and-so is is rubbish and so on. And, and that sometimes comes weirdly from sort of not understanding the stats on what they, they really mean. So again, the economy rate 
if it just flashes up and it's it looked crap but the guy bowls at the death um, and it's good for the death but you don't really think about that when it, it comes up because it's not contextualized um so in a weird way the sort of use of numbers in t20 can um has sometimes led to yeah to more abuse for for players and quite a, a very brutal kind of evaluation system and I suppose, yeah. Some some players, I think, there's almost there's almost a sense that they're interchangeable and they're just another number in a in an Excel spreadsheet. Um, so there's a brute, yeah, there's a brutality to it, really. Tony just pointed at me when you were talking about people uh, having a go at Jade Dernback. So yeah, I've probably been guilty of that in the past. Um, that's, that's very interesting to think about. Yeah, that um, that kind of tougher side of the freelance life that is perhaps easy to miss from the outside and certainly you'd get a lot of uh, uh, a lot of former players who you know played in previous eras who would probably you know who might just be talking about oh they don't know they don't know they're born they don't know how lucky they are but actually it's it's more complicated than that yes there is more money sloshing around but it is a different kind of life and a more difficult kind of life as you've outlined we might come back to some of that um more negative side of t20 uh, because it is very interesting. But I just wanted to ask, the, the the opening of your book, the prologue is entitled The Gimmick, and it starts with a quote from Ricky Ponting in 2005, saying, I think it's difficult to play seriously. So, And that was very much the perception, wasn't it, to begin with, that it was just a bit of hit and giggle. It was a bit of fun. You know, the first kind of T20 internationals were sort of exhibitions, weren't there? There was no concept of this being uh, a serious form of the game. So, You've obviously kind of chronicled the history of it in this book. So, wh- when did you when do you feel that 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 idea began to shift? In some ways, in county cricket, the shift happens quite early. So, two thousand and three, teams don't know how to approach it, and some teams actually rest some of their leading players um, for it, which now seems crazy. But very quickly, they caught on to the fact, you know, because they are. As a county cricketer, you're not used to playing in front of large crowds. So when you do have large crowds, I think I think that in itself that makes it taken seriously pretty early on. So I think, you know, by actually, you know, within a season or two in county cricket, it was it was it was taken really, you know, it was taken really seriously, and lots of players would probably, compared to say the One Day Cup, I think T20 quickly became value part of that simply because loads of people were going. It was a way to make a name for yourself, even just as a kind of a cult hero in, in county cricket, but. Yeah, of course, a professional, you know, a sportsman, they, they get a buzz from playing in front of a big crowd. I think with international cricket, it, it was a, a slightly longer process because obviously they were used to playing in front of large audiences and, and these random T20 internationals were sort of plonked on as exhibition matches. So the game you talked about, New Zealand v Australia in 2005, was the first inaugural men's T20. It was actually women's women's T20 international started in uh, 2004. But the first men's game, um, the Kiwis wore retro shirts and retro kind of 80s um, <laughs> 80s disco hairstyles and stuff <laughs> it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a joke and um, Ricky Ponting that's after so Ricky Ponting got 98 not out in that game but he still said it's hard to take seriously and Australia won easily so it wasn't he wasn't embittered or anything about defeat he was just being honest um, and I think that that sort of persists really until first World 20 in 07 um, when even the pre- Pre the tournament, not everyone was taking it seriously. A good example of this was actually India, who decided it wasn't worth, you know, Sachin Tendulkar and so on, from you know, <laughs> luring themselves to play in this tournament. They were above it, 
Um, but of course, what happens is India end up winning that tournament, and that's an, an amazing way to kickstart a tournament. Perfect for, from the ICC's point of view, of course. And, and and that sort of, and then there was a sort of a seriousness to it. Um, and of course, that helps to. Well, the IPL was coming. Edith India had lost, you know, in the final, and but it was announced, I think, two days into the World T20, so it was coming anyway. But the fact India does so well, that just means there's more interest in the IPL and more money in it from from the get go. And then the IPL comes along, but actually the IPL, it's because of the it's so inextricably linked with Bollywood and the idea of entertainment. So the fa- the fact that it, its creation, it was you know, the the times of games they were deliberately set up to be the same time every day, and also to be in the slot that used to be reserved for soap operas. So it was set up to go head to head against soap operas. Um, and, and a lot of you know the initial owners, you know, they actually they wanted to be, they wanted to basically hang out with the superstars and so on. Um, and so they weren't that level of professionalism. It doesn't really come about for a little while. Um, and there's a famous quote from Dale Steyn in the first in the first year when he basically says the IPL, you know, <laughs> it's the best paid holiday ever. <laughs> and he obviously this saying he was he was taken out of context, but um, he, he wasn't he wasn't really. It's, yeah, do you know when I when I was reading the book, it, it was great because every time you sort of mention a particular performance or innings, you know, it's like straight online to to kind of relive it and things I'd, I'd forgotten about. But yeah, just think about Stain and and De Villiers. Um, I think you, you talk about him as a player really wonderfully. Uh, you guys in the book, uh, I, was, I was interested thinking though, are, are there players or younger players that you've seen around now who have the potential to or who are doing something? kind of different or, or, or are going to change the game over the next 10 years in the way that you talk about the likes of, of Gail, McCullum, uh, Narine? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I mean, one of the big questions for like batting in T20 is whether what we see from Andre Russell, which is, is amazing, you know, needs only three or four balls to play himself in and then he's got this amazing method of hitting sixes so, so early on in his innings and can be so, so brutal as whether that whether he's just a kind of a beautiful freak or whether there's he's a prototype for what batting what will look like. Yeah, I mean guys like Shimron Hat Hatmeyer who actually got hundred and forty for what's in his today and Odiovich against India, he's you know, uh some very exciting young players. But in terms of yeah, of of new things, I mean one of the big big things still is that players tend to start their innings pretty slowly, um, you know, not swimming very quickly the first Five, five, ten balls. Um, so more players who can score really, really quickly from early in their innings. Um, I'm talking about how Russell does that. That that's a kind of innovation that I think we might see slowly. Um, but but you know there is a tendency sometimes just to say something really, really bold, which is almost impossible. Like the idea of ambidextrous bowlers. I mean, there might be one or two of those, but it's so so hard to be good enough bowling with you know with one arm. I don't know. I can't see there being massive, massive things we haven't thought about completely but I think there's room for players to get a lot smarter in their approach there's room for teams to get a lot smarter with their approach I mean from the point of view of the teams the biggest remains that wickets tend to be overvalued and by that I mean teams um, that their risk trade-off between wickets and scoring quickly as quickly as possible is still too often still too geared towards wicket towards preserving their wickets for too long in their innings and, and the sort of all-time classic example of this is World T20 semi-final last time uh, was seen to be India in Mumbai. So what happens is 
is obviously a very, very flat, flat wicket as it always is at Ryan Cayley Stadium. Uh, India pick Junko Rahana, who's a, he's a good player, but they, they pick him to do a certain role, which is basically to be very solid at the top of the order and you know score ones and twos and rotate the strike and kind of be a you know smart batting in inverted commas and what. He got 42 off 35, um, and India get 192 for two, which ostensibly sounds like a great score, but actually. West Indies at the time thought it was under the par, and it turns out that, they, that it was, and that they cruised to victory. And they, so those sorts of innings, I, I think we, we are seeing fewer, fewer of those where basically where batsmen put their own scoring ahead of the interest of the team. And that's actually, and doing that as an example of where using data better will, is and will improve the game, because one of the problems historically is that uh, when, other, when teams just look at a scoreboard when signing players, you know, they'll see if a guy's got you know, 50 off 38 balls, I'll be like, yeah, he scored 50, that's good, you know, we might want to sign him, but actually, if he scored a lot slower than other players in that match, that might actually, innings might be a drag on the team, so, you know, we think of this thing called match-losing innings, which is quite a fun concept, but it's actually where you can make quite a lot of runs and still be a negative value to your team, so you can sometimes make make 50, if you do it really slowly, you do more damage than if, you, than if you'd got out for a golden duck. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. It's interesting to um, to to think about uh, how batting might develop in T Twenty along those lines. But I, I wonder what you think about the same question, but for bowling, how bowling might develop, and actually the history of bowling in in T Twenty as well, because it is, and this is something you talk about in the book. You know, when when T Twenty first came about, a lot of people thought that it it basically signalled the end of bowling. That you know that you may as well just have a bowling machine. Um, that because it was just going to be about who can hit the ball the furthest and the bowlers were kind of an irrelevance but that's absolutely not what happened that hasn't been the case at all so um again when did when did people first start to to notice that yeah absolutely so i think i think the reason in a funny way like the very reason that t20 is set up to be a batsman's game exactly those are why bowls are so important because i think you need to be probably more skillful to be a bowler that's consistently successful in t20 than a, than a batsman um, because you're you're sort of so exposed you have a batsman using video footage and everything to, to get a sense of you second so guess you and batsman obviously can just attack you um, teams are getting smarter well it works both ways but teams will try and bat uh, bat batsmen uh, who are particularly good against a certain type of ball and like leg spin or whatever to, to try and have a go at them and obviously you have fielding restrictions you have short boundaries you know t- TV cameras actually they tend to make boundaries considerably shorter because of the demands of you know all their cameras and so on. So it's very very hard to stay at the top as a bowler. I think in in T20 history, only very few bowlers have done that. So Lasith Malinga would be one. Rashid Khan is only sort of four years in, but he you could say he's probably another of of, of staying the absolute gold standard. Um, I think you know, in general teams with the best fifth bowler, they're in a very good position to win matches because. In some ways, your fifth bowler is as important as your first bowler because they're all everyone has can bowl, you know, only four overs. Whereas obviously your best batsman can can face sixty balls, and your fifth best might not face any. Um, so there's this actually idea that uh, batting is a kind of a strong link game. Like a couple of great bats in your team can can win you lots of games, but in some way bowling is a weak link game. So if you have one or two weak bowlers, that can drag down everything and really expose your whole structure. Um, yeah, I mean the process of bowling being being recognised. I mean that developed through this was the the IPL um, 
the success of Chennai and Kolkata Knight Riders, they had a very strong bowling core, and that's that sort of contrasted with Bangalore, who are kind of the joke team of the IPL. They've got all these batting Galacticos. They've got Virat Kohli, A.B. De Villiers. They've had guys like Shane Watson, Chris Gale, and it's translated into no pitches at all, and that's because they're kind of a bad version of Kevin Keegan's Newcastle United, so they might score 200, but they'll concede 205. So, um, yeah, that's a real issue. So, in terms of where this all points to, I think one of the really big, big, big things is that spin does better than pace in all three phases of the inning. So, it's cheaper in the first six, it's cheaper in the middle overs, and it's cheaper in the last five overs as well. So, so spin is still under bold, I think, uh, and there's still and the scope. We're seeing that tick up was in the scope for teams to be much more creative. I think what Guyana have done in the CPL is a really good example. So they they set up the pitch, and not everyone approves, but they've set up the pitches massively to help spin, and they, they're basically un, almost unbeatable at home. I think they, they won every home game last, last season, actually won 11 games in a row all in because they just they regularly bowl 12 plus overs of spin, sometimes 16 in the innings, and just suffocate teams. Um, so I think in terms of of, of bowling and, and things so it's using spin as a big one and also being much more ruthless in home advantage so home teams only win 53% of games over the history of T20 I think that that suggests that teams aren't using home advantage nearly as much as, as they could they're sometimes just preparing kind of fairly flat identical grounds um, I think as winning becomes more important in, in T20 leagues and uh, teams become more focused on how they can get, get extra wins uh, I think yeah we'll see home advantage uh, and the quest to use that become much more of an issue. Uh, yeah, as I mentioned, uh, Tim, you, you know, you guys, it's, it's a very thorough uh, study on T20, covering all, all the aspects, obviously the sort of structure and, and business of it. And, uh, you know, I guess writing it, you've been putting it together, you know, against the backdrop in, in England of, of the 100 being announced and developed and, yeah, and, and the mixed reception that's received. What, 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 what's the kind of feeling around the world about, about what, what that tournament is, is trying to be? Yeah, it's obviously, yeah, it was kind of sorry, annoying for the book because we, um, we hope the 100 could help promote it and hopefully it still will, but it, it would have been nice had it been 220 as well. So from a selfish point of view, we're annoyed the 100 has been created rather than 220 comp. Um, I, but I think in, in some ways the 100 will potentially just accelerate the, these trends because obviously the, that fundamental relationship between the value of a wicket and the value of a run, that'll be even more skewed in favour of of, of scoring quickly, wickets will matter less in in that sense. Um, and I think, I think basically, I think the reason it's created is because there's the ECB field should have by now had a franchise T20 league, and it sort of left it so 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 late that they're now like, well, we might as well try and do the the next thing rather than just get there ten, you know, twelve years after the IPL. Can we try and maybe not outdo the IPL, but at least be different and give ourselves a distinct place in the marketplace because the T20 calendar is so so saturated and we've seen teams lose a lot of uh, countries and boards often lose a lot of money so South Africa um, they, their global T20 league which they tried to launch two years ago had to cancel it and they lost over 10 million pounds on that so that was crippling crippling blow um, and it was it was stupid because they were basically they were trying to do a tournament for Indian fans but Indian fans are not interested in watching domestic leagues in other, in other countries and that's a kind of extreme example of a mistake lots of leagues have made so I think the ECB was showing well how can we this saturated market let's differentiate ourselves and that's what they've, they've come up with 100 and you know I, I think given that 
it'll be on BBC and that's that's such an important thing and what that does both in terms of having live matches but also it it will mean BBC Sport website more kind to promote it it'll probably get more coverage on BBC News and, and everything the whole the whole kind of ecosystem will will really support it in a way that can it's never it doesn't get doesn't get that on mainstream but I think 100 will be successful um at least pretty successful in terms of you know media coverage and fans and stuff. I mean, the, the great unanswered question is whether it will be more successful than the T20 competition could have been. You know, personally, I'm not convinced about that. But even so, I think it will be uh, a new sort of burst of energy in, in domestic cricket, and it will. I think it it will help to to get more people over to cricket. I suppose. Yeah, it will probably alienate some as well. Uh, the evidence so far so very complicated yeah yeah we could talk all night about the 100 do, do you think we'll see 100 ball tournaments uh like popping up anywhere else off the back of it well i mean t- t10 is quite a successful game already so we might see more t10 t10 formats i suppose the 100 is from a kind of time point of view if it fits in a bit weirdly in terms of it's not you know it's nearer to, to t20 than, than t10 so leagues might think they need to go the t- t10 route rather than 100 if they want to make t20 shorter but yeah, certainly it's possible we could see some other leagues do the 100. Um, I do think in general, actually, that T20 cricket, there, there's been a bit of a problem in recent years with games slowly, slowly, slowly expanding, partly because of strategic timeouts, which obviously just add breaks by other name, but partly because uh, bowlers and captains are just faffing around so much between balls. And I think there is a case for, for switching ends only every two overs, say, rather than every one. That would save a lot of time, for, for example. I think, yeah, so many sports, you know, a lot of American sports and so on are really worried about the, the pace of play and basically viewers' attention span being less um, because viewers less inclined to watch games from, from start to the finish really in any sport. So I think I think boards will look at making it either and or either making T20 itself a bit a bit shorter by reducing those gaps or moving it to a, a shorter format altogether. I think T20 will remain in the premier short format of the game and the IPL will certainly not change from being T20 but we, we might see other other countries try and experiment with, with with even shorter games as well so it kind of creates even more of a in some ways confusion for the fans because it's yeah there's so so many there's so many things going on in cricket yeah. it's a very complicated thing to explain to people we're not uh, neither of us here at World Cricket Show Tales are a big fan of the idea of the 100 certainly I'm not but i do definitely take the point that the fact that it's on bbc uh is massive and and it could well be a success if only for that reason so uh yeah obviously in in the book you talk about um yeah the sort of the shift towards or from international uh competition in cricket to to club you know club-based competitions is that is that something you kind of see going further and further you know over the next few years and from what from talking to people uh, is there a real appetite for that? Do you think from from players, from you know representing your country to to, to you know to club based? Yeah. No, I mean I think most players that they, they still really do like enjoy playing for their country. I think there is a you know winning the World Cup, either the T Twenty World Cup or the ODI World Cup, especially is would still really be the pinnacle for for most players. But I think what the rise of club cricket has done, it it has it's more it's more 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 democratic, and by that I mean you can be paid what you're worth on the free market rather than paid less because your country's poorer. Like, so, so Joe Root earns about six times more playing for England than Kate Williamson does, even though Kate Williamson, most people say, is better than Joe Root. So that's that's just Kate Williamson suffering because New Zealand's got a small cricket economy and that's uh, obviously that's even more 
Uh, there's far more extreme examples of that when you look at, at poorer country, uh, poorer test nations or all teams that aren't test nations. So what the rise of club cricket has done, it, it's opened up, it's provided avenues for anyone to go if they're, if they're good enough, kind of a new energy to, to globalisation and to sort of scouting. And it's, it's also obviously allowed uh, top international players just to play in a different environment. And, and there is a, it's a kind of a fun element to that as well. So I think that the question for cricket is, it's not so much will club cricket grow more because it will it's how much of a stage will be left for international cricket and is is there a way to manage everything in a you know in a good way so international cricket is not marginalised massively you know I th- I think there is a real chance to do that and I think you could have a re- you can have a really good system where the different different forms of cricket support each other and you get the kind of anticipation you know of one format of of, of you know international cricket after a period of club cricket and, and vice versa but um, yeah, you need good, careful administration, and cricket has not been good at that at all historically, as we know. Well, I think um, we've probably only got uh, one or two more questions for you, Tim, before we let you go to bed. Um, but uh, I, what I wanted to ask you—you you touched earlier on um, some of the more negative aspects of T20. You said that in writing the book, you did want to include everything, including the the the, the more negative stuff, and you talked about the um, players' mental health and and that kind of thing. What do you think about, say, in terms of a a wider view of T20 and how it's impacted on the sport of cricket more generally, what do you think about the idea that T20, and this was obviously something people were worried about at the time, that when it first came around, and perhaps are worried again now, what do you think about the idea that T20 has had a negative effect on particularly test cricket uh, young players coming through, perhaps their batting technique uh, isn't what it was for players coming through 15, 20 years ago, that um, learning all those new T20 skills uh, growing up, that that's not necessarily the skills that you need in longer form cricket, in test cricket. I'd, I, you know, I'm just interested to know what your view on on how T20 sits alongside test cricket and the, you know whether, the, whether they can coexist happily together from just from a you know, a playing point of view a sort of quality of cricket point of view yeah it was interesting um interesting is how much do we care about the quality of cricket and i'm not sure it's as much as people think so i think t20s probably to be honest, had two slightly contradictory effects on test cricket i think num- number one is it yeah i think it probably has had a slightly adverse effect on on techniques or on bats and on ability to to play for a long period of time and all those things, those traits that people always talk about. But I think if the quality is less, <laughs> Test cricket is probably more exciting than ever before. And and T20 is, is part of that, you know, partly because low scoring matches tend to be more exciting. And, and also you see the possibilities of batsmen doing ridiculous things, which is because of T20. You know, as Ben Stokes has said, you can never play that amazing things at Henley without the impact of T20. So I think actually Test cricket is more exciting than ever. And T20 is a part of that. I don't think Test cricket is necessarily better, i.e. of a higher standard than ever, although the quality of bowling around the world is pretty phenomenal at the moment. Um, but actually, I, I, don't know, I don't think quality matters that much. Like, How do you tell it, you know, if, if the standard of test cricket now is, is 70 out of 100 around the world, and 15 years ago it was 80, 85, I mean, I don't know, I don't think the average fan really notices that massively, or even if they do, I don't think it puts off watching. I think if the game's exciting, which it, it, it often is, um, people have been worried about the history, the future of test cricket, like, forever. And that's not changing. And I think in some ways, T competition from the T20 could help Test cricket. So we've seen the rise of day-night Test cricket, which should have happened years and years ago, didn't happen until 2015. But that undoubtedly T20 helped to 
to force and push administrators to finally get behind that and do that. The fact we have a structure now, very, very imperfect, flawed structure, but a structure nevertheless with the World Test Championship, that is partly because of competition from T20, and also T20 has created a norm where you watch a league and it comes to a winner. You don't, you know, there's an obvious context to matches, um, and Test cricket has not had that. Um, and now it, it, well, it's too confusing, as I said, but it's it's better than nothing. Its structures, its structure has gone from one out of ten to probably four out of ten, and hopefully it will then improve in the future. Um, so uh, yeah, there's actually signs I think that that T20 can can help Test cricket. Well, yeah, I don't think we want to keep you uh, keep you too long. You'll be you know regaling us with the whole contents of the book, and yeah, we want people to go out and uh, and, and read it for themselves. Yeah, as I say, it's it's a, yeah, it's really good stuff. Have you have you had good reaction to it? Yeah, no, it's been. Oh, thanks very much. First of all, um, and yeah, we had had some really good good reaction, um, some nice 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 re- reviews from various people um, from Gideon Hay. And, which is always nice as a cricket writer, um, and yeah, and, and various others. So it's, yeah, it's been really good. I think yeah, lots of people have said um, they kind of really appreciate that we've sort of taken a step back. I think because there's so so much to twenty, it can be very confusing. You know, however much you you kind of love to twenty, you can't no one can watch every every game and stuff. So to to kind of take a step back and work out what's happening and, and where we're headed, I, I think hope uh, people have found that kind of valuable and interesting. And and obviously we, we've tried to tell the, the you know the book through through human stories really so it's yeah it's definitely not a kind of data book whatever it's it's about the, the stories and the people that have shaped T20 and, and how it shaped, it shaped them from you know Kieran Pollard and you know, he plays this innings in Hyderabad uh, just over 10 years ago which which changes both both his life and sort of T20 batting forever and then we have you know stories like like the Jay, Jay Dermot story which we talked about earlier we have the kind of Rashid Khan of the democratization of, of cricket and cricket finally slowly becoming a sport where you can be, you can be a, a superstar even if your country is not one. Um, so yeah, the, the sort of stories stories behind it have been have been really interesting and um, yeah. So um, hopefully there's a, there's a lot lot there to enjoy and um, you should all ask for it um, in your Christmas stocking. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, thanks very much, Tim. Uh, thanks for making the time. I know you've. Uh, you flew into South Africa today from India, so uh, yeah, must be feeling the jet lag a bit as it's it's uh, getting quite late in the evening there now. So uh, yeah, thanks again for making the time, and uh, yeah, good luck with the book. Always enjoy listening. So um, thanks very much for having me, and uh, all the best for. The- Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well-lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The 2020s.
Okay, Tone, well, let's move on and talk about some test cricket. England are off to South Africa. Uh, We'll talk about that series, which is coming up in a little bit. But before that, um, let's discuss the series that they've just played in New Zealand. They were were over there for a two-match series at the end of November and very beginning of December. Uh, And it was not a very successful one for England. New Zealand won it 1-0. They won the first test at Mount Monganui, despite putting themselves in a in a pretty decent position batting first. They were at one stage 203 for three. They were then 277 for four with Ben Stokes on 91. But, and this is a, you know, this is an, an unusual occurrence for this England test team. They collapsed to be 353 all out with Tim Southey taking four wickets. New Zealand were then in trouble themselves. England, you know, back in the game when they had uh, when they had the home side, 127 for four and then 197 for five. But some quite extraordinary lower middle order batting from BJ Watling, who made an astonishing double century, uh, as well as Mitchell Santner with the first Test 100 of his own. And Colin de Grandom 65 meant that, they, meant that they eventually declared on 615 for nine, a seventh wicket partnership of 261 between Watling and Santner. Uh, so that was a huge first innings lead. England needed to uh, to, to dig in to try and uh, get themselves out of trouble, save the game on the final day, but they couldn't do it. They were skittled out for 197 with Neil Wagner taking five for 44. So New Zealand 1-0 up in this series. The second match at Hamilton uh, wasn't a great game. It ended as a draw. New Zealand made 375 in the first innings with Tom Latham scoring 100. England batted much better. 476 with Joe Root making a double 100 and Rory Burns 100 as well. But with some rain around as well and the fact that it had taken a long time to score those runs, it was hard to force a result and New Zealand batted very comfortably in their second innings that finished uh, 241 for two with Kane Williamson and Ross Taylor both scoring unbeaten hundreds. So uh, a very comfortable draw for New Zealand, which uh, sealed the series win for them. So, sorry, that was a, a bit of an epic it was uh, summary, but um, hopefully we're all on the same page. Then. I have to say, I didn't see a huge amount of this live. The time zones are not great, especially when you've got uh, a young baby uh, and are struggling to make it to 9pm uh, <laughs> before you have to go to bed, let alone uh, 2 or 3 in the morning. So I didn't see a huge amount of this live, but I have you know, obviously caught up with all the highlights. I don't know how much you saw live, but it, it seemed to me to be a bit of an odd series, really. It was a little bit flat. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. You know, obviously, well, I mean, it wasn't part or isn't, wasn't part of the Test Championship, was it? Which, which is uh, yeah, a bit bizarre in the sense that it's only just started and it feels a, a, yeah, a bit strange. And that, you know, the, particularly the second <laughs> Test, the track wasn't really conducive to an exciting contest. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I... I yeah, it's a bit bit of an underwhelming mini series. There's more exciting stuff to come. Obviously, we'll talk about South Africa in a minute. But yeah, I, I, I'm loath to ask the question, "What did we learn?" But it, it, yeah, it's probably a fairly forgettable couple of matches. I mean, I guess for England, you know, for Silverwood, yeah, it will be pretty memorable because it's you know, first Test match, first Test match series. Yeah, under his watch. 
I don't know, the, 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 maybe there are hints here and there of, of, of some of the right ideas creeping back in. Mm. Um, but yeah, I get, you know, I guess New Zealand are, are, are just at the moment, they're a, a good side, aren't they? And they're, they're probably a better side all round than England are. Oh, almost yeah. almost certainly are. Yeah. So as, as uh, proven, as proven. Yeah. And the results and the, you know, the, the, the players they've got at their disposal at the moment and the way they're performing. So, uh, yeah, I don't think there's any shame, certainly no shame for England to have, to have been beaten there. You'll probably be more uh, despondent, perhaps, yeah, about well, how things have started. Just looking at my notes here, I've got the word shame underlined, <laughs> underlined and in bold. Shame. Uh, no, that's not quite true. But I, yeah, I, as you say, it's, it's probably a bit of a forgettable series. Some very flat pitches, which is not what you typically associate with New Zealand necessarily. But certainly that pitch in Hamilton for the second test was just dead i mean even on the final day there was just nothing doing whatsoever i think also it didn't it doesn't help that it's only 18 months since england were last in new zealand you know there was a series in 2018 and it's it, you know yes there obviously there's been a, a change to the schedule which is kind of where this has come from but it is just a, a very weird thing about cricket that england played one series in new zealand in 10 years and then they're back again uh and, 18 and, months after the last one and both only two test series both only two yeah. tests and they're off to sri lanka in the spring as well, when they were also there even more recently than that uh, in 2018. Uh, and yeah, as you say, only a two, t- both of those only two test series and especially against this current New Zealand team, it serves a lot more than that. You could easily have a five test series, but you could only have four. Three wouldn't be enough. Two is just a bit of a token gesture, isn't it? And I also worry, and I know we've spoken about the test championship uh, uh, quite a bit, and I don't want to just retread the same ground, um, but, but that being said, I do worry a bit that it could, the Test Championship, while it's well-intentioned, has got lots of problems. And one of them, I think, is that it could end up being a bit counterproductive in that when you have series like this that don't count towards Test Championship points, does it make it less significant than if the Test Championship didn't exist at all? Which then makes you think, well, why not? Why even bother having those series? Or why not have all the series count towards the Test Championship? But that is impractical. The whole thing is just a bit of a half measure, isn't it? And I just worry that by introducing this concept that like test test matches and test series only matter in the context of a of a larger uh, championship, you are perhaps undermining what has sustained Test cricket for well over a hundred years, which is that they have a significance in and of themselves. And if you're saying that actually they don't you know, that is potentially harmful, certainly for these series, which don't count in the championship, but also I would say for series that do count in the championship, but further down the road between teams who have no chance of, of winning it, you know, in, in a year's time, a series between two teams who are, you know, struggling to make much headway are not going to be in the top two. Does that series stop meaning anything? And I, you know, so I, 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 I just worry a bit about that, and I think that you know we've perhaps seen the first signs of that in this series. No, I think that is fair. I think it's a, it's a very good point. Uh, that's one of it, one of an uh, yeah a clutch of issues, isn't that? And I, th- I think just the fact that it was only two tests and they, you know, the, the action was pretty dry. You know, if it were three or four, and it was you know it was a real good contest then you know maybe we'd be reflecting slightly differently but yeah no, i think it's a good point but as you say in terms of uh, in terms of how england should assess their performance or how we should assess england's performance you do have to say new zealand are a very good team they're extremely impressive in this series it's just a very good side these days this is their fifth series win in a row at home you know they've obviously won some some uh, notable series 
away from home as well. And what I think what was particularly nice was that the the kind of the main architects of this victory were a couple of unsung heroes. So BJ Watling and Neil Wagner. I didn't mention that Wagner took more wickets uh, in the second test as well. What did he get? Uh, a six for, no, another five for, 524 in the second test. So he took, uh, I think, 13 wickets in two games. Watling and Wagner. Watling is not box office necessarily, but he's just so competent, both with the gloves and with the bat. He has eight test hundreds now, an average of 40. I think he'd be a, this might be something that we we talk about at a later date, but I think he would be a, a contender to take the gloves in a in a team of the decade. You know, he's he's not exactly a household name, um, but he's just he just goes about his business and, and then in this series comes up with a double century. He's just, he's a very good player. And Wagner is a fantastic bowler to watch, isn't he? He really gives it everything, pounds into the crease. There was a ball he bowled in the on the final day of the first test, I think to dismiss Joe Denley. I don't know if you remember that one. That was just, it was a magnificent delivery. It just kind of took off, off the pitch, really kind of lifted up and flicked, climbed so steeply that it just flicked the gloves on the way through. And he, he does have that extra yard of pace, extra bounce that catches, you know, that takes batsmen by surprise. And it, yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a, a really great bowler to watch. And he's also an extremely successful bowler. He's, he now has a better average and a better strike rate than either Tim Southey or Trent Bolt. He's actually got a better strike rate in Test cricket than Glenn McGrath, than Dennis Lilly, than Jeff Thompson, Brett Lee, Imran Khan, Bob Willis, and he has played forty-four games now. So that's you know that's a reasonable sample size. He's yeah, he's a he's a very good bowler, uh, but not necessarily you know he wouldn't necessarily be uh, high on the list for a lot of people in terms you know if they were putting together a world eleven, especially with so many other good fast bowlers around. But he is one of the best fast bowlers in the world, and for New Zealand, you know they're they're they are now about to take on Australia in Australia. And I think that could be, if I can make it, if I can somehow make it uh, past midnight to watch it, I think that could be a really fantastic series. And it is, it's a, it's a bit of a golden opportunity for New Zealand really, isn't it? To, to win a series there. And, and, and that would be, you know, that would be kind of sealing their, sealing a kind of legacy for this team. They, as I say, they've, they've won some series away from home, but they, they, they haven't won like a really big series. They haven't won in England or Australia or India. They've got a real chance to do that here uh, and kind of put themselves forward as like potentially the best New Zealand team of all time. Which is quite exciting, really. You're part of why those kind of guys, well, and I think a lot of these New Zealand team, you know, these New Zealand players, yeah, as you say, Watling, etc. You know, and it is the fact that we just in England haven't seen a huge amount of them, have we? You know, they get these two test series it's been ages since they played anything meaningful so which is a shame again you you could easily i think you could easily uh, support a a five test series between england and new zealand in england so what so hang on new zealand came in played two tests in 2015 that was a cracking series two tests in 2013 and then previous to that it was three tests in 2008 three tests in 2004 i mean yeah so they played four tests in England in 11, nearly 12 years, which I mean, that is pretty tragic when you consider how That's good poor. this team is and how good it has been for a while. You know, it's, it's kind of two teams kind of won, uh, but, you know, with, in the Brendan McCullum era as well. Not, I mean, not that playing more test matches in England is, is like the be all and end all, <laughs> you know, Virat Kohli's got score True. runs in England. <laughs> True. Uh, but yeah, certainly, you know, they're, they're obviously, yeah, have other, 
other things, other goals in mind. But yeah, no, I, well, I don't think we meant that in terms of no, like exactly. that's, that's the benchmark. But as in like just for us and for English cricket fans, it's a shame that we haven't seen more of them. Um, no, I agree. That's good. I'm glad you agree. <laughs> well, for England, um, as I say, you, yeah, as as you say, perhaps shouldn't be too harsh, given that New Zealand are a good team, given that it was only two tests. But it was a bit of a familiar narrative, really, wasn't it? It was uh, the batting throwing away a strong position in the first innings of the first test and then falling apart after that, you know, collapse in the first innings, couldn't get to 200 in the second innings. And also familiar that the, the bowling attack was was somewhat toothless on flat pitches away from home. And I, I think our hope and, and even expectation was that Jofra Archer might make a difference in that regard. You know, we've obviously seen a lot of that over the last few years, you know, not least in Australia, uh, two winters ago, uh, England seen bowlers lacking pace, lacking bite, lacking penetration. We thought Archer might be the guy to change that. This is only two tests, but he struggled. He struggled for pace. He struggled for rhythm. He only took two wickets. It was a bit of a chastening experience, perhaps sort of uh, bringing us all back down to earth. This is to someone who, after after his test debut, was named England's number one most hostile or scariest fast bowler of all time by you know by by an english newspaper yeah it's just perhaps a a, a, a reminder that um, there is a long way to go in the same way that probably well so obviously that judging him after you know one or two tests at the start of the summer was was you know hasty obviously judging him after two tests here is, is hasty as well so yeah i think it's just you know a gentle and necessary reminder just for people just to sort of chill out a bit mm. you're too lenient tone maybe i should yeah. my view is very much get him out guilty guilty <laughs> guilty a couple of uh new batsmen coming in well a few new batsmen in, in in a way so well a couple of debutants in in dom sibley and zach crawley and ollie pope back in the side as well pope did pretty well scored a, a half century not much from crawley or sibley but uh, yeah again it's you know it's it's way too early to make any judgments and they they deserve a run in the side Joe Root with a, a double hundred, which was a very good innings in Hamilton. But again, and I know I sound like a broken record on this, but again, it's just so depressing hearing his quote at the end of the series that he was, you know, I, I don't know, I haven't got it verbatim, but it was something like, you know, we're, I was proud of the way we played, proud of the way we bounced back in the second test. And I just feel like his head's just in the sand on a lot of this stuff. And I feel like the a lot of the England set up is too and perhaps I'm you know perhaps I'm I'm t- I am too negative about the England team because they have had good results but it just depresses me a bit that they they don't seem to see that there are problems and, and you know and in fairness they have tried to fix some of those problems in this series by bringing in new batsmen dropping Johnny Bairstow who's one of the players who you know that is kind of coming back he's kind of struggled but then exactly he's he's, he's coming straight back, back he's in. straight back into the side I'm a, the idea was that he'd go away and find some form and you know it's like oh no let's just get him back yeah I don't really understand that like he's been out the side for about six weeks yeah England have played two tests yeah a, me- a relatively meaningless series yeah what's he he's just, I think he's spent a couple of weeks in Mumbai or something like well the answer is that Root likes him yeah that they're friends and yeah, and it's a bit more than that. Like he obviously does have a, a good record overall for England, but in the last 18 months or so, he's really struggled in Test cricket. And like, what has he done to suggest that having made that decision that, you know, he needs to be dropped because he's 
struggled what has he done to to change that calculation nothing so I mean you could say well England lost and they're panicking a bit so they're going back to tried and trust, tried and tested but yeah. yeah it's 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 a depressing selection because it does just feel it all feels very cozy doesn't it and we I worried a bit about that with the appointment of Silverwood as a kind of inside uh, inside the tent appointment and you know it just it does feel a bit like jobs for the boys sometimes and you know yeah, and I, you know, I've said in the past, I, do, I think the, the media coverage often can be a bit too strong when players are left out. You know, it's this person's been dropped, and the intimation being that there's no way back for them. Once you've been dropped, that's it. You're 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 deadwood. Yeah, um, which isn't that that shouldn't be how really you go about selection, in my opinion. But the flip side of that, certainly with Bairstow and and Moeen as well, is it, it's like players. There are certain players in it that once they are left out all the chat really is just about when they're going to be brought back it's not like let's just forget about them for a bit and let them get on with you know focusing on you know getting their game back or you're know, finding the kind of form that would make them you know and an, uh, you know and at a certain pick uh, someone you, you know you just can't leave out instead it's like well the question is always well like when are these players going to come back and you, it's probably just it can't be good for the the players that come in in their place because they're just thinking well I'm going to be held to a different standard to yeah to the to the guys that have been sort of floating around for a, for a number of years. Definitely, yeah. Is that what the CBS producers said to you when they passed you over for James Corden? It was just <laughs> just not yeah. selected this time. Yeah, exactly. Dropped. <laughs> but but you know the flip side, and as you say, you know Zach Crawley and uh, Dom Sibley came in, uh, and, and Pope as well. Yeah, he, he, as you say, played well. You know, for for the, all those guys, you know, there's probably never been a better opportunity to make yourself a, an England regular mm. than at the moment because, you know, you go back a few years and it was almost, you sort of, there was no way into this side. Whereas now, if you do well, if you show any sort of promise, you can you can get in there. So, yeah, I don't know. In a, in a way, you know, maybe a couple of years down the line, this, this little period might work out well. I don't know that, you know, it might drive real competition for for people to want to get in there. Yeah, very possibly. Although equally, it, it could be like in the nineties where there was no stability yeah, whatsoever. That's, but, like, yeah. <laughs> that's Cheers, the, the other uh, the, positive uh, <laughs> positive assessment. But hopefully not. And as you say, it could well be that it drives it drives people on. Um, yeah. They're, so they're off to South Africa. So I just wanted to say about mm, Root as well. You know, obviously, you know, we're not overwhelmed with options for the captaincy but I, at this point I don't know like it is people have stopped talking about Root in the same breaths as Williamson Coley Smith and not you know quite rightly and it maybe it's harsh to to put that much pressure on on someone that, that you know everyone did um but but I do think now as you say given the way that that Root is kind of handling things as a captain okay yeah he scored a double century here did very well but you know the overall kind of trend has not been great for his batting. Yeah, you know, I do think that that England need to think about a way to get the best out of him as a batsman and give him the best chance to to be the figurehead. I mean, it's not going to happen. They're not going to take the captaincy away from him. But I just I would like to ask somebody we were talking before the uh uh, before the pod about uh, British politics, and I was saying the that, yeah that my, was left in the cutting. Yeah, floor. my problem is at the moment is that I just keep rehearsing in my head conversations that I'd have with various figures, which are obviously conversations that are never going to happen. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things I'd like to say to various people. I do also rehearse conversations in my head with Tom Harrison and uh, 
<laughs> and Colin Graves. And uh, yeah, they're not going to happen either. But I would like to ask somebody, what is the virtue of Root being captain? What is the what is the benefit of Root being captain other than he's captain at the moment? We don't want to take, away, take it away from him. Other than he's our best batsman and other than he's like the golden boy of English cricket. But what he tactically he's not very good he's got better but he's not you know he's not like a natural captain it's making his batting worse england's results he's make, it's making it's making yeah he's making uh you're starting to not like him <laughs> well yeah no, which is really it's, sad it's, it's true because well, like I'm he's not, one like at, certainly you go back a couple of years he was one of the most likable batsmen to what for me to mm. watch it just uh, the way he approached it, and yeah, I don't know. It's it's no, it's, I, I, I'm not. I don't. I'm not starting you to dislike him. him personally, but I'm getting very frustrated with him, and I, I just don't see who it benefits him being captain. The only other reason that I hadn't touched on is that there's no one else to do. Yeah, that I mean, that ultimately might be what it is, but just give it to somebody else because it's it's not working at the moment. England haven't won a Test series this year, and but also not only that, it, it, in a way, it's the worst. It's been the worst possible pattern of results because they've not won a test series this year. You know, obviously they they drew the series against Australia, but they did they didn't win the Ashes. So essentially, it's been three uh, three bad results in Test cricket this year. But it's been the worst possible way that those could have played out because, like in the Caribbean, they got absolutely thumped in the first two tests, lost the series, but then won the third test, which we saw in St Lucia. The Ashes they lost or essentially lost but they won the final test to draw the series here. All right. They didn't win the second test and get anywhere near winning, but Root scored a double hundred and he felt that England played better. So it's like, there's always been, they've always left the series feeling that, ah, things are actually all right. And that's, I think a big part of the problem in some ways, if they just got hammered in, you know, in all three encounters, then perhaps people would be talking more seriously about Root's position. But I don't know. Yeah. I'm, I'm probably overly harsh, but I just don't see, don't see much improvement and it really frustrates me that he he and the other people around the the management of the team just don't seem to to get it so they're off to south africa next the first test of that series gets underway at centurion on boxing day they've picked their squad as we mentioned a return for johnny bairstow which is somewhat perplexing return for jimmy anderson as well which is uh, uh much better news Still no Ben Folks, you know, Bearstow back in, still no Ben Folks, which I do find baffling. I know people might come back with, well, he had a poor summer in the championship. I think he only averaged 25 or 26, which is true. But, you know, this is a guy who, who scored that amazing 100 in Sri Lanka, did brilliantly in the England Test team and then was just dropped. And then, then now Johnny Bearstow's been, you know, was left out. He's still not brought back. It, again, it, it does feel a bit jobs for the Boise in that, did they just not really like folks for whatever reason? It's a strange one. But for all these issues, England might well get away with it in South Africa because, if only because South African cricket is an absolute basket case at the moment. I don't know how closely you've been following this story, but South Africa currently have no coach, no selectors. Their main sponsors have just pulled out and the and Cricket South Africa's CEO has just been suspended this following some South African cricket journalists being banned from press conferences and so on because the CEO didn't like their reporting. I mean, we've talked a lot over the years, over the 11 years that we've been doing this thing, we've talked a lot about bad governance in cricket and which cricket board is worst run 
uh, cricket South Africa, you know, a bit of a dark horse in that regard, but have got to be uh, have got to be up there now. Yeah, make you a late play for uh, late play for it. Uh, yeah, I, well, it's t- yeah, it's tough to know how. Well, it's tough to know what. Yeah, how they're going to shape up, isn't it, the, the, for this series? I know, you know, Faf uh, Duplessis has sort of come out and said it. You know, it's time to to make South Africa great again, which was <laughs> words to those effect. Yeah. Um, and you know they've had a pretty wretched year all round, haven't they? They, as we talked about last time, they had a pretty demoralising tour of India, pretty ropey World Cup. Uh, they got turned over by Sri Lanka. I, yeah, but you know you don't have to go back a long way. Although, albeit you know, obviously a couple of very significant retirements since they were you know a, a, a really quite decent side. So might be quite an exciting series in that regard because yeah, well they still knows some, what's going to happen. They've still got some very good players. That's true, but. We talked about this, I think, on the most recent pod we did, and and after the World Cup as well, which where they were very disappointing. It does just you know it feels a bit worrying to be a South African fan. Uh, you know, it feels like a, a worrying moment to be a South African cricket fan because you just look on the field; there just they d- d- don't seem to be that many uh, exciting young players coming through, and the one the, some of the, some of the ones that do just uh, toddle off to take up cold pack contracts in England so it, it just does feel a bit bleak because just in terms of quality you know it's it's a it's a tough time for the South African team and then when you add in all this you know uh shambolic governance and and other things going on behind the scenes it's just not a great time but as you say they do still have some good players that you know that they, they are they will be at home England are in a in a tough place themselves so it's uh, it could actually be a very competitive series. It could be a very exciting series to watch because sometimes it's you know when you've got two flawed teams that often makes a very compelling cricket. So I'm excited for the series, but just a bit uh, concerned for South African cricket more widely. Do you want to give me a, a prediction for that <laughs> series, too? Not really. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, four tests. <sighs> if that helps, I'm going to go. 2-1 South Africa. Interesting. I was sitting here very smugly waiting for that prediction and I suddenly realised that I'm going to have to give one <laughs> as well and I don't know. Uh, I, I might say 2-all actually. I might say 2 Go all. for it. 2-all. <laughs> so I mean, yeah, it's, 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 it's a hard one to call. But, you know, you've, you've got to push yourself sometimes, Tone. You can't Get sit on... comfort the, zone. You can't keep sitting on the fence. You're never going to get that gig on uh, American TV if you don't put yourself out there a bit more. This is true. <laughs> Carry on. I'd love to see. I'd, I would love to like wake up in a world where you're hosting a late night talk show. I don't even know who I, I feel like just I'm so out of the loop of the world. I don't even know who would I have on like please Dennis welcome Quaid. Justin Beaver. <laughs> uh, Dennis Quaid. I don't, know, like, I don't know who'd be my guest. All the big stars like. Pete Doherty, Dennis Quaid, and <laughs> I don't know, yeah. Molly Ringwald. Uh, It'd be quite fun. I don't. I mean, I, yeah, I wouldn't pass it up. The opportunity. Mm. Just don't know. Yeah, I'd be. I need to do a lot of research. I think my main concern at this point is that I just. I don't. I. I don't really watch many movies, read many books. I don't know what. I don't know what. This is, this is really worrying. That's actually, your main concern. No, I just need to break it. Concern. I need got... to break this season. You're not actually going to be hosting <laughs> a late night talk show. I just. I don't know what. I don't know if I've got a specialist subject anymore in my life. So, and this was brought into sharp focus the other night when you hosted your second quiz 
at your at the library mm, where uh, I work a Star Wars themed quiz ahead of the uh, new movie genuinely I would have absolutely nailed it as a I don't know 14 year old I guess when did when did uh, sort of 13 year old what when Phantom Menace came when out when Phantom Menace like came out 12 J- uh, my peak would have been probably the six months after Phantom Menace I would yeah. have absolutely destroyed anyone it was hopeless well, you say Couldn't that. I mean, remember anything. You say you it's would all have about just... <laughs> crystals and wizards now. Like... <laughs> it's not about wizards. <laughs> it, you say you would have destroyed anyone aged like 13, 14. As long as I've known you, you have been terrible at remembering anything from anything you've watched. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> I could see that on your face while hosting the quiz because I was obviously like up on the stage, but I could <laughs> see your team was sat in the very center of the room. And basically, any question I asked, you just sat there like tapping your chin with one finger going um oh and it was like the question was like who is luke skywalker's father and you're there like oh um, <laughs> oh god i can't remember i can't remember anything yeah I should point out because you didn't that um your team came dead last yeah i mean there was a man dressed as princess leia there was, a, there was someone in full Darth Vader costume. On the other team. Yeah, mean. on the other yeah. team. <laughs> Not my team. <laughs> and we still couldn't win. Uh, yeah. We were, I think we were up against it from the start. I mean, we, yeah, we had, we had three quizzes. Oh, to, right, three yeah. idiots to, uh, to most teams. You had sort of five or six. Yeah. Two of our kind of key players had dropped out. So I, I don't know. I thought we, we did well to stay in touch at the bottom yeah, he said to me afterwards he's like quite pleased with that actually we weren't too far away from second bottom <laughs> I was like yeah true true yeah um, no there was some, there was some big Star Wars fans there you should have done a, a Ashes quiz really this summer you should do a sport do some sort of sport quiz sports quiz is not a bad idea we, so we did a Game of Thrones quiz before no, Star Wars quiz talking about doing a Harry Potter quiz but people are now coming like because afterwards I was like you know sent out like a feedback form to all the team captains I was like you know We'd like I to run that. Well, no, you're not team captain. Yeah, and I was like, you know, we're, we're hoping to run more quizzes in future. You know, if you've got any suggestions, people are just coming in with more and more obscure stuff. Like, you know, people suggested like Doctor Who and Marvel and things. But then someone was like, uh, what about like, um, what about Quantum Leap? <laughs> I was like, I said, no, it's a, it's a good suggestion, but I'm not sure that we're going to get 100 yeah. people here for I'd a Quantum Leap quiz night. I don't think I wouldn't get a single question right in a quantum leap quiz. All righty, Tone. Well, I think that pretty much brings us to an end. Happy Crimbo to you and yours. Thanks. And to you. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Thanks. <laughs> what are you up to for Christmas this year? Uh, in Guernsey. Yeah, in the Guernsey Island. Mm. Um, Your home. Yeah, the place I call home. Yeah, uh, chilling, really. We've got. I think we've potentially got one more pod, haven't we, in the locker? It's yeah. not in the locker yet, but it... In the pipeline. In, in and around the locker. There might be one more before the end of the year. And we'll certainly be back in January to talk about England in South Africa and all sorts of other things, I'm sure. It's actually a, a couple of other cricket bits that we ought to mention before we go. One of which is that Test Cricket is back in Pakistan. This is a huge story, actually, which we've we've rather buried it's the the first uh, test series in pakistan since obviously the the dreadful uh, terrorist attack uh, when sri lanka were there in 2009 sri lanka are, are involved again this time and yeah the, it's actually just underway as we're recording this on wednesday 
it's uh, it's just got underway. Probably by the time people are hearing this, it will have finished. Um, but uh, it, the test has just started in Rawalpindi, Sri Lanka, 200 T for five at the end of day one. So we, we won't talk about this a huge amount uh, because, yeah, it, it's ongoing. Perhaps we can talk about it more next time. But it is uh, big news and incredibly uh, uplifting news for Pakistan because I have to say, a couple of years ago, I thought we were a long, long way away from this happening. For sure. I mean, yeah, exactly. You know, there's been a few pieces reflecting on that. I mean, it's 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 as I say, easy to forget how well a bad it was, but how bad it you know perhaps how much worse it could have been, how, how significant that was. Yeah, it's it's had a yeah a huge impact on yeah Pakistan cricket and and uh, you know obviously the, the, the people involved. But mm. um, yeah, really really positive to, well, to be back. I, I mean, eleven years is a long time to not have Test cricket at home. So none of the players on either side have ever played in have ever played a test match in Pakistan before. And we're talking that includes some Pakistan players who have been around for a long time, like Azhar Ali. You know, it's quite quite extraordinary, really. And obviously it's incredibly good news for people in Pakistan. And actually for the team as well, isn't you know perhaps come at a good time for Pakistan because it might be just the thing they need to kind of get back on track in Test cricket to give them some you know, a bit of a, a fillip in Test cricket because they had a very tough, tough time of it over the last couple of years since they were number one in the world not that long ago um, things have really spiralled they've lost 17 of their last 24 tests and obviously just got walloped in Australia going back home uh, could be a, a, a good tonic for the team on the field as well as off it the other thing I just wanted to mention Tone is that I watched that documentary film The Edge actually watched it quite a while ago but we haven't done a podcast for a while I just wanted to uh, to touch on that and really just to to recommend it. It's a hard recommend from me for you and for listeners to go and watch it if you haven't. It's on Amazon Prime and it's a film which uh, uh, tracks the England test team from, well, the kind of Andy Flower, Andy Strauss era, so from sort of 2009 to 2013 when it all fell apart in Australia. Uh, and there's lots of footage from the time uh, behind the scenes footage from the time and interviews with the players kind of retrospectively looking back on that era uh, and I just thought it was amazing like, I thought it'd be really interesting as a huge cricket fan a huge fan it's of right the street. team it you is right get my it street. Like four times for Christmas <laughs> but I also would rec- I'd actually recommend it this, this might be a tough sell but I would actually say it's worth watching even for people who don't like cricket or aren't interested in cricket I'm not sure just don't see how that's going to work you're shaking your head uh, yeah, it is definitely a hard sell, but it's very interesting for reasons not related to cricket. Like it, it's, it's kind of about, it is obviously a lot about cricket, but it's also about just achieving greatness or achieving success and achieving greatness in something and the impermanence of that and what you do next. And, and it's quite striking to see how many of the players from that time have found it difficult to kind of come to terms with it and the fact that it's over, the fact that it all fell apart, the fact that it's over. There's an amazing moment of Paul Collingwood talking about how he still dreams about being on the field, he still dreams about being in the slip cordon. And, and I, you know, I'm sure this is true of all cricketers, of all sportsmen in any team, good ones or bad ones, but they obviously did create something very special there, but it was fleeting um, and it fell apart so spectacularly. And it's kind of fascinating from a psychological point of view and uh, as well as a, a sporting point of view. And yeah, J- MVP, undoubtedly Jonathan Trott, he just comes across like such a good guy and had a very tough time. 
and I'm not going to spoil it, but the last line, I think of the movie, or certainly Jonathan Trott's last line, genuinely brought a tear to my eye. Um, it's very emotional. Uh, and yeah, so it's a, it's, a, it's a very hard recommend from me, Tone. I might watch it at the start. I, I, to be fair, I've been meaning to watch it for about... 10 years or well, I might watch it this afternoon actually you should you can give us your review already. next time your review is just it was alright <laughs> yeah okie dokie well I think that's everything we wanted to talk about thanks again to Tim Wigmore for coming on the show we'll be back soon possibly one more before Christmas but certainly in the new year otherwise more podcasts next year that's my new year's resolution for 2020 Tim. yeah I agree. We can do that. We can do it's, it. It's within our... It's certainly with our power. We're the only, one who can, we're, the only ones, we're the only ones who can make it happen, yeah, quite it's, literally. It's within our grasp. Yeah. No, no one else is going to do it for us. No. Although we did talk about potentially hiring an editor. We literally talked about someone getting someone to do it for us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I might just tag someone in, to be fair, to do, the, uh, to do my bit, to play me... <laughs> by the end of 2020 somebody's watched the edge the end of 2020 it's just Charles Colville and Dominic Cork <laughs> <laughs> that, I mean that would certainly reduce our workload and um, yeah probably send the listening figures through the roof yeah I had to, uh, what I could do with it, maybe someone doing me some sort of briefing notes yeah a bit of a uh, bit of research I feel a bit underprepared at times good. if someone just kind of handed you a, a ledger as you're striding into the room <laughs> sit down Right, okay, what are we talking about today? Yeah, I might set up an auto-queue as well, one of the you know, two auto-queues either side of you. Um, all right, well, yeah, looking forward to that next year. In the meantime, uh, if you enjoy the World Cricket Show, you can get involved on social media. We're on Facebook, at Cricket Show. We're on Twitter, at Cricket Show as well. We're also on Instagram. You can send us an email, all sorts of stuff. If, you enjoy, if you've enjoyed the podcast this year uh, and you haven't yet reviewed us on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use, go ahead and do that. If you enjoyed us disappearing <laughs> during the greatest summer of English cricket. Yeah. If you've enjoyed the t- three podcasts we've done this year, uh, write us a review because it is uh, very, very helpful to bring new people to the show. Okay, well, thanks for that, Tony. My voice is just about held up, I think. Has yeah, it? you've done it right. You've yeah. not sneezed on me too many times. All right, well, stay in school, everyone. Have a very Merry Christmas. Enjoy the cricket on Boxing Day. And we'll speak to you soon. Bye-bye for now. <laughs>
Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show yeah. is absolutely yeah. incredible. Or anime. Yeah, and under this sure. mask is another mask. <laughs> <laughs> you can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.